Thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. If you have your Bibles, would you please open them to Revelations chapter 2? And we are going to be on verse 8 all the way to 11. Um, again, it is a pleasure for me to be here with you guys. Uh, it is an honor that Pastor Van would ask me to come and share the word. Uh, Pastor Van and I go a little ways back. He was my professor in preaching school. So if you don't like my message, you know who to talk to. Um, make sure you send him an email. Um, my claim to fame is that I am married to a wonderful, amazing, beautiful wife by the name of Savannah Lopez, and she's sitting right here. I just want to honor her. Uh, she is the love of my life, and I'm also the dad to a young, little, amazing girl that knows absolutely no strangers. We go to Walmart, and she says, hey, to everybody. So we're working on that because she has gone uh, to grab a stranger's hands. So uh, we're working on her. She's amazing. Uh, her name's Sophia, and I'm also the son to uh, my wonderful parents who are here. Just want to honor them uh, as well. Revelation 2, verse 8 to 11. If you have not found it, you need to read your Bible more. I gave you enough time to find it. I was wrecked by the song that we were singing right before this because it talked about when we are going through the fire in the church that I have been assigned to speak on this morning was a church that was not just singing about being in the fire. It was a church that was absolutely living it. And it's one thing to sing about it, and it's another thing to live it. When you're just singing about it, you're half-hearted. Maybe you'll sing one line or another, but when you're living it, you can feel the heat and the pressure, but you can also see a God that's next to you. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slender of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in the prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. May God bless the reading of his word. When I heard we were going over the book of Revelation in the first few chapters, I was really excited but also scared. Because when I was a new believer... I remember having just a 
hesitation to go into the book of Revelation. To me and to many, the book of Revelation is known as this book that puts together a bunch of apocalyptic theories and prophecies. It's a book about doom. It's a book about God's judgment. And it's a book about wars and disaster. So to me, that was a little scary. And honestly, not something I wanted to hear about. But I believe that the book of Revelation is a lot more than just that. The book of Revelation opens up a window, a door, into seeing God's heart towards his church. That it reveals what God wants and desires from his church. And in this second letter to the church of Smyrna, he reveals something really special to us. Something that was geared towards them and their specific context, but also something that we can take home and apply in our own life. Now, the church of Smyrna was a church located in one of the most amazing ports in the world. Its location was in the western part of Turkey. And this port was so important because it had almost a direct connection between Asia Minor, Minor and Athens, which was the gateway into Europe. That's why the importance of a church in Smyrna, through a church there, the gospel could travel to many places. Smyrna was a place of rich history, and its people knew their history 600 BC, the city of Smyrna is completely destroyed by the Lydians. It's left as a village. And then, a little bit after this event, a commander by the name of Alexander the Great has a dream as he's passing through the city, and his dream is to rebuild this city. And so, because of this rebuilding of the city in their folklore, all over their writings and all over their city streets, there was this theme of being the city that was dead, but now had come back to life. And it is this theme that is known to the church of Smyrna that Jesus takes a hold of and says, the one who was dead but now lives is the one who's speaking to you. And they would have immediately understood the context of what he was saying. Smyrna was also known as having a monopoly on myrrh. Hence the name Smyrna. Now, most likely, when the three wise men were going to meet Jesus, they would have passed through Smyrna to get the myrrh to offer as a gift. Not only that, most likely, after Jesus was brought down from the cross and his body was wrapped and they used myrrh so that the body would not extend odor, that myrrh 
would have came from Smyrna. And you see this theme of death and life all over this city. This language of death to resurrection all over. Smyrna was also the home to the great poet Homer, the writer of the Iliad and the Odyssey. It was also home to the famous church father by the name of Polycarp. They had the great honor of being one of the few cities, and this was a great honor, being one of the few cities that had a temple that was specifically for the worship of the Roman emperor. And because this temple was there, there was a lot of persecution that started to happen against Christians because in order for them to enter the agora or the marketplace, the place where all the trade were occur, they had to dip their hands, their fingers into incense and say praise be to the emperor. And Christians had a problem with that. And so they could not enter the main place of trade, the main place of work. And so they had this great honor of not only having the temple, but something that was key to being a mega city of their time. They had the ability to host games. And they would host athletes from all over the place. And it was known as a mega city. It was known as a star city. It was known as a model city. And in this sophisticated city, some of the worst atrocities against Christians began to happen. Early historical records tells us that believers were dragged torture, and even killed at the marketplace. That they were being burnt alive. That they were being given to the wild beasts. That they were stoned to death. Unimaginable things were happening to Christians. The church in Smyrna was assailed from every side. They were going through suffering, enduring travel, troubles. They were ostracized. They were neglected. They were belittled. They were discriminated. They were impoverished. I fear that sometimes the worst thing we will have to present to the Lord when we meet him is that nobody talked to me when I entered the doors through the church. I fear that the worst persecution we would have is that they didn't agree with my political stance. I fear that the worst persecution that we would have to present before the Lord is that our needs weren't met. How far have we drifted from the church that endured, from the church that stood, from the church that came together, 
from the church that loved one another. And Jesus responds to this church that is going through all these horrible things. It's a Greek word by the name of oidas. He says, I know. And this I know is not just I see from far away. This I know is I see, I perceive, I understand. I've personally seen it happen. It hasn't come through a second account. I know I am in the middle of it. Imagine a church that is seeing their sons and their daughters, their fathers being executed right in front of them. What relief it would have been to hear from the Lord saying, I know. I see your suffering. I see that you can't bring food to the table. I see that you've been laid over. I see that you've been overlooked. I see that you're suffering. I see that your needs are not being met. I see all these things that are happening to you. I see that you're in a pandemic. I see and I know. And he says, I see your tribulation. In this word that Jesus uses, he could have said, I see your pain, I see your suffering. But he used this very strong word, tribulation. In the Greek is philipsis. And this word, in its original sense, is a word used to torture and it was a torture where you would have the individual lay on a flat surface and you would have a boulder and weights be put on top of the person and they would be asked to denounce their faith or to say their crimes. And when they chose to not do that, they would begin to lower the boulder and they would begin to add weight. And they would begin to add weight as the person would not deny Christ or the person would not admit their crimes. And they would go to the point where they could not breathe. And this is what Jesus is saying. I see that you are under pressure. And not just any pressure. You're under pressure where you can't breathe. This is the pressure that I see you're under. And here are the three tribulations that the church of Smyrna are going through. Now, they didn't tell me what time to end. So, that usually means an hour and a half in my context. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll get you out of here before the Baptists get to the restaurants. <laughs> yeah. So, three things. Poverty, slander, imprisonment, and death. Those are the three things that Jesus sees as the tribulation of the church. Poverty. There's two words in the Greek to describe poverty. And Jesus is specific in using one. There's a poverty... That describes the wages of the slaves. 
which means you have barely enough to make it. But that is not the poverty that Jesus chooses in this passage. The poverty that Jesus, the word for poverty that Jesus uses in this passage is that the word and the word picture is of a homeless person who is on their knees looking for something to eat. The church of Smyrna was not just poor. They didn't have to eat at times. That is the poverty that Jesus is describing. And you know, the thing is that this poverty caused them to unite. This poverty caused them to share with one another. This poverty caused them to be connected to their neighbors. And so therefore Jesus says, but you are not poor, you are rich. I remember my grandma telling me that some people are so poor that the only thing they have is money. And as I was studying this passage, I remember that hero of mine, my grandmother, Hortensia Lopez. Just a mighty woman. She used to come visit us in the United States, and we used to take her to Ryan. And there's no Ryan in Honduras. So she would come, and as we were finishing up, she would put strawberries in her purse. And we would find them at the house. <laughs> she was the funniest person I've ever met. She was wild. The doctors used to tell her, you better watch your eating because your blood pressure is going to go up and you're going to pass away. And she's like, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. Watch, you are going to pass away before I did. <laughs> and um, she lived to be past her 80s when the doctor said she wouldn't pass her 60s. A mighty woman of God. And I remember when I was younger, I was, sent, I, was, I was going to Honduras to visit for the first time in a long time. And I asked my parents, so where am I going to stay? And my dad goes, you're going to stay over at your grandma's. I didn't understand what that meant, but as you probably know, Honduras is a third world country. There is extreme poverty there, and uh, my grandmother was part of that extreme poverty, and I remember that when we arrived to Honduras, um, I knew I was staying with my grandmother, but they said, we have to wait till night time because if someone sees you during the daytime and they know you're coming from the U.S., they might kidnap you. And I remember pulling up to her house and just seeing a fence of uneven pieces of wood. And I remember being snuck into the house 
Outside was the kitchen. Next to the shower. And the shower was a tub where they collected rainwater. I remember going into the house and it having a dirt floor. And at that moment, I realized, uh-oh, where am I? We hung out. I sat, during, I sat at the bed, and I saw a shadow to my left. I was like, Grandma, there's an animal in here. And she goes, no, that's, your, that's just your grandparents' pet. And I was like, oh, is it a cat? No, it's Philip the rat. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it was time to go to sleep. No air conditioning, tropical weather. Mosquitoes all over the place. She's used to it. I've been living in the United States for I don't know how long. I'm petrified of mosquitoes. And so I put the cover and I leave a little hole where I can breathe. I did not sleep the whole night. In the morning, I saw how she opened the windows. Still dark. 5.30 a.m. And she knelt down. And she prayed for hours. This wasn't the first time I'd seen her do that. When she would come and visit us in the United States, she would do that every single day. And as the day broke in, I saw boulders that cover her windows. You could barely see any light. Someone had moved in next door and was kicking them out of their land. Talk about rage. Talk about impotence. I felt all those things. But my grandma, my grandma, she trusted in Jesus. You know, I didn't inherit land. I don't know if she ever had over $5,000 or $1,000 in her bank account. But she gave me the biggest heritage of faith. And that's what Jesus says is richness. That is what holds true value. And that's what the church of Smyrna had. They were total outcasts because they could not find jobs. They would not enter into the worship of foreign gods. So they were ostracized and neglected. They were financially ruined. And God saw that. 
The word that is used to describe the richness by Jesus is a famous word in the Greek that means that you have something so abundant that it can't be counted. That is the measure of their wellness. Something so rich, so abundant that can't not, it can't be counted. In the passage, we also see that they are met with slander. And the slander came from the Jews that were part of the synagogue of Satan. So says Jesus. Satan is a word that means the one who accuses. And they were doing exactly that. They were slandering and accusing Christians of things that they wouldn't do and had never done. And the accusations were things like the Christians would gather together in love feasts, meaning orgies. And they would drink each other's blood and eat each other's flesh. They would also say that the Christians did not have a sense of family because they call one another brother and sister. They, they, they neglected their own family to care for brothers and sisters, and that was a big deal in that time. And so to add to the pressure of poverty, they're being slandered. And so when a Christian walked by, People would spit and curse because the other slander was that when anything happened negatively that affected negatively the city, they would blame it on the Christians for they said they worshiped the one true God. Yet Smyrna worshiped the God of rain, Smyrna worshiped a God of wine, Smyrna worshiped all sorts of different gods. And so when something happened in the city, they would blame the Christians. Another layer of pressure. And the last thing that Jesus warns them about is that they would suffer imprisonment and even death. Now, we think about prisons nowadays. And, I mean, I wouldn't want to be in prison, but they're definitely not what they used to be. We're talking about rat-infested feces Urine all over the place. Some documents say that you can smell a prison for half a mile away. It was disgusting. And all they had to do to not endure any of these things was to deny Jesus. And they would have been let go. But they stood their ground. They had something bigger than themselves, something bigger than their politics, something bigger than their opinions, something bigger than who they wanted to be, something bigger than themselves to stand for. I'll end with this. Polycarp, and the band can't come on up, was one of the sons of Smyrna one of the early fathers of the church. And uh, he was in Smyrna when persecution arose. And Christians began to be thrown to the wild beasts and they began to be stoned to death. And all these things were happening and people could not understand why 
these Christians were choosing death over life. And so they began to ask around and they said, what's going on? And they looked for the leader of the church in the city of Smyrna. And that leader was Polycarp, the bishop Polycarp. And so an account came saying that it was because Polycarp was enticing them that they would choose death over life. So what happens is that they send several soldiers to the house of Polycarp. And when they get there a day before, Polycarp has a dream. And in the dream, his pillow is set on fire. And he takes that as a sign that God is showing him that he must suffer When the soldiers arrive, they knock on the door and ask, where is Polycarp? We've come to arrest him. And Polycarp, our account tells us, runs down and says, I am he, I am Polycarp, the man who you're looking for. But would you mind giving me an hour of prayer? I know what you've come for. But before I leave, could we feed you with a meal? And our account says that they made breakfast for them. And as they were sitting down, they could hear the passion in the prayer of Polycarp. One hour turned into two hours, and finally they took Polycarp to a stadium where the host of the stadium brought Polycarp up and said, Denounce your God. Polycarp said, No, I will not do that. And the master of ceremony said, We have wild beasts. And Polycarp, like a bad Christian, said, release them. I love it. The master of ceremony got upset with that answer and said, I'm not going to send you to the beast. I'm going to burn you alive. Deny your God or you'll be burned alive. And then the most famous words that are left from Polycarp were said, and he said, for 86 years, my Lord and Savior has never let me down. I will not let him down today. I will not deny my God. And whatever is to happen to me, will happen and so in a rage they send Polycarp down and they put the woods around him and usually they would nail people's hands down to the wood that held them but Polycarp said just tie my hands I'm not going to run 
And they did that and they set the fire to the wood. And as the flames began to go up, the people that were around said there was a sweet fragrance. Instead of the smell of flesh burning, there was a sweet fragrance as all this was happening. And as the people watched, there was a wind that came and pushed the fire aside. And Polycarp did not burn. But in a rage, they send the soldier to stab him with a sword. And his blood stopped the fire. And it's such a beautiful picture. What we deserved was stopped by one man's blood over 2,000 years ago. And when we walk through the fire, it is his blood that covers us. That when we walk through the waters, it is him who sustains us. This is really the end of my sermon, I promise. But I cannot leave without saying this. Jesus ends this letter saying, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Remember I told you that in this city, they would hold games. And so that meant that there was many athletes that would compete in these games. And when they won, they would be given a leaf crown or a wreath. And that would be called a victor's crown. Now a Christian would have never dreamed of getting one of those. But Jesus said, I myself, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth, will give you this. The emperors were the ones who would crown the athletes. And when the athlete went around the time, they would be venerated, not for a month, but for their entire life. And so when they read this, this Mernon's, they knew what Jesus was saying. That he had a crown for those who were willing to stand, for those who were willing to persevere, for those who would even give their lives. A crown that would last for eternity. My prayer is that as a church, we would stop playing games. My prayer is that as a church and as individuals, we would start loving one another. And that's not just my prayer. That's God's heart. This is the richest nation in the world. 
that we would begin to see money not as the end of our life, but as a means to bring forth the gospel into this broken world. That if we can see that our wealth goes beyond our money, that we can see that sometimes we will go through stuff and it's not the will of God to remove us from that stuff, but for us to glorify God through it, then we'll start seeing revival. Then we will not have room enough for people coming into this building. That if we just say, God, I'm willing to put myself to the side. Then we will be rich in God's eyes. So God, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would come and convict us and guide us into all truth and that you would guide our life. And Lord, I pray for anybody going through the fire right now. I pray the blood of Christ over their life. I pray that that peace that surpasses all understanding will begin to permeate every area where the enemy has come and attacked. Oh, Lord, I pray for a revival. I pray for Christians that love you with all their hearts. Lord, and I ask for forgiveness for my own sins. Because there's sometimes that I've been so focused on so little. While you've had a crown of victory for me. So we pray that for your church. In the name of Jesus. Amen.